Hello and welcome. You are now listening to The Junk and Jam Hour, a live talk radio broadcast, a full 60 minutes of laughs, fun, and money. Well, maybe not money, but do take pleasure in the fact that you'll be getting to know someone new, like an artist, a musician, an author, or perhaps a silly clown. That's got to be worth something. Am I right? This is The Junk and Jan Hour, only on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for your on-air host, Silly Clown, Christopher Albert. Hello everyone. Happy Monday. You are listening to The Junk and Jam Hour right here. On Radio Free Brooklyn, the nonprofit community organization and freeform internet radio station, streaming original content by New York City artists, along as me, DJs, broadcasters, uh, you name it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As always, I try to bring you someone interesting. My very special guest today is an accomplished artist, a native New Yorker, who, after receiving her MFA from Yale University, excuse us, and her BFA from the Fashion Institute of Technology, she has went on to become a world-renowned, site-specific, immersive installation artist. Don't worry if you don't know what that is. We'll find out what it is. With exhibitions all across the United States and Europe. Her astonishing, her astonishing. I just combined those two words, her astonishing. <laughs> her astonishing exhibits often rooted in the stirring themes of the history of racist violence, gentrification, and lost regional history, forces its audience to confront either their own contributions or inactions on issues that affect the well-being of their neighbors, including displacement, migration, marginalization, and cultural invisibility. Her elaborate work also offers a performance element, which typically brings the artwork out of its exhibition space and onto the streets, which she refers to as processionals, and has so far organized in several U.S. cities, including Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and of course, right here in New York City. She's been graciously recognized for her very important work and has been the recipient of many accolades, including the Joan Mitchell Foundation and the New York Community Trust Grants, uh, the Chuck Close, Henry W. and Marion T. Mitchell Rome Prize, the United States Artist Fellowship, and the venerated Obie Award for her work as a scenic and costume designer, not to mention a residence at the American Academy in Rome. She's also been written up by the New York Times and the Washington Post. You guys don't know nothing. While much of her provocative collective work has been sourced from objects and materials found from the streets of the surrounding areas of her exhibition sites, she has since evolved, at least in my opinion, from her one straightforward principle of one person's trash is another person's treasure to where she is now, a conscious, unpretentious woman who's committed to showcasing just how interconnected we all are through our much aligned and messy histories. She is more than a mere abstract artist conveying vague sentiment through symbolism. She is a sincere architect of the retelling of our forgotten stories through the reflection of our once valued discarded belongings with the repurposing of miscellaneous antiquities. She helps to reconstruct a deeper meaningful story behind the veil of our abandoned objects. You like how I wrote that? Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, I might sound, guys, like I'm editorializing the out of her work, but trust me, it's all true. Her work is personal, political, atypical, and 
divine. Let us welcome sculptor, site-specific, installation designer, architect, and engineer, educator, provocateur, the acclaimed multidisciplinary artist, Miss Abigail Dawn DeVille. Hello there. <laughs> hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so excited to have you on. I've been waiting for this for years. <laughs> I know, I'm glad we were able to make it happen. We both went to art and design many years ago. We won't date us. Yes. We won't date ourselves, A&D guys. And deep for life. And life. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> you know, I went into the new one. They now have a piano in the lobby. Can you believe that? Love it. Really? What do we okay. get? A broken escalator. <laughs> We had lots of broken things. We, <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we right. This is a broken pencil. Draw. We've come a long way. Now, obviously, it's we've all been in quarantine. Thankfully, we still have our lives. We still have our health, and of course, lots of love to those who have been affected by it, um, and who have lost uh, people. Because hey, it's Memorial Weekend. It's a party for everyone else. You have been in quarantine. You have been binge-watching documentaries. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I've been watching documentaries. Okay, yeah, I think at the first few weeks of quarantine, I was obsessively watching uh, some artist documentaries. Yeah. Specifically, like, painters, Picasso, whoever. Ah. And, yeah, it just went down, you know, the documentary rabbit hole. But I love that. Now, we'll talk more about you being an educator, but does that also inform you know how you instruct just keeping abreast of all the information that you might have forgotten from school (laughs) yeah you know yeah being being an educator or yeah or being someone who has the privilege and opportunity to be in front of you know young fresh bright-eyed artists (laughs) kind of like you you're trying to collect as much information as possible that you could have on a reserve to be able to share with them I love that. anything that could be helpful with their working on I love that and I love how you're not trying to rub off your cynicism onto them <laughs> so not that I could <laughs> not that I consider you a cynic now well again because we're that old if you could go back 20 years did you ever imagine yourself being committed to living as a full-time jet-setting artist? <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't know what I thought I was going to do 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I, I saw that I in your eyes, no by the way. <laughs> huh? I saw that in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no idea, no idea. I love that. I mean, it was zero ambition, right? It was just, you know... Yeah, but you've always had supportive parents. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even though you didn't know what you wanted to do, they were like, you know, whatever it is will help you. Well, my mom, like, broke her foot off on my backside. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me break my foot off you. (laughs) She was like, you're not going to waste your talent. So Good. uh, I love that. She did a lot of things that I was not interested in doing when we were in high school. One being is that I... um, I went to the Cooper Union Saturday program from 96 to 99, and I was <laughs> not that happy about it. But I, I will say I will credit it with being the reason why I'm an artist now. I love that. I love that. So now you could have just settled for painting with a brush on your little canvas. 
<laughs> How did you end up doing this intricate work of sculpture? Without getting into specifics, though, but I mean, it's it's such a labor of love, obviously. Any any art, obviously, is. I, I feel like I do paint just with objects, and yeah. uh, I think super size was always my natural <laughs> scale, right? Like, mm-hmm. I just it things just feel right when it's a, a room size installation or intervention. Rather, it's very hard for me to make something that's you know eight and a half by eleven or you know something that's that's small. It's, Is it just too restricting of a space? Yeah, and and, and I need dirt. I need that to be like the, the base layer of something, right? Like I need a, a fact or a history or something used, something that has some sort of residue to it, and then be in conversation and rip off of that. And, you know, like it's daunting to think about like a blank page or a blank surface and, and especially like a compressed space. Yeah. So your work, for the most part, can be described, as you say, site-specific installations. <laughs> that give physical presence to unspoken histories and forgotten past. Extrapolate on that a little bit. I mean, you go into a space. At, at this point, you know, you already have this goal to tell stories of the past using found objects. First of all, for those of us who aren't as cultured, what are site-specific installations? So it's when somebody makes something within a landscape or, you know, a uh, you know, like a city alleyway somewhere that's not an institutional or gallery space. Yeah. And then they make it there and they leave it there. And it's usually, usually has a kind of, it has a time-based element built into it in terms of the fact that it's already inherently, you know, has death encapsulated within it, right? Because it's not protected from the elements and things like that. Right. But it's right. something that lives outside of, the potential maybe of being you know viable or marketable or something like that so and when it, when it first really got you know hot in the streets you know when it got really popular i don't think it's a i think it you know like it, it actually feels like it could be an uh, analogous to like 1970s like graffiti practices in you know in new york right. city right like it's right. not it's not unlike that it's, it's very close to that it's it's like you know Claiming your territory as an right. artist, making something in unsanctioned. Does that space make then. does that make your work more accessible to more people when you do at least outside, you know, site Definitely. and silly. Yeah, yeah. But because now, you know, a lot of people are not going to pay you know like twenty five dollars to go to a museum to see something, right? But they may walk down the street and see something. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to talk about specific. So, but you got into this place where okay, I have a voice, you have a vision, and you want to tell other people's stories who the world or society has forgotten about. How did that loft, it's such a lofty objective, right? And it's become your signature work, and it could be such a big responsibility, you know, to bear, you know? What made you decide to go there? What was that aha moment? I can do this for others who can't tell their stories anymore or who just don't have a platform to tell their stories right now? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it probably started when I was an undergraduate at FIT. Uh, there was a moment where I was just kind of hit a wall and I was making a lot of things, but without any like real ideas, feeling them, yeah. just being excited to make stuff. And then 
I, I developed the first kind of research project was me just delving into the history of hip hop and uh -huh. seeing, you know, that it was like a true, you know, a true artistic movement that had a visual and performing and writing component, right? Like a real straight up art movement and right. thinking about what, what kind of intense struggle. And a social that. message, right? Behind it. Yeah. 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 So, so thinking about just the, the kind of freedom of expression or people competing with each other or people making each other better. But then, yeah, but then all of the societal factors that led up to that explosive moment. Yeah. Um, so that was a, like that was really the first research project. And then thinking, thinking, thinking through that and then larger, right, like trying to make these connections with small spaces of like my grandmother's project apartment or. You know, like thinking about our place within the universe. Somehow, I got there. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure when that really happened. Maybe like around 2009. Oh, well, it I doesn't. Think about the universe. We so. don't have to set a date to it, but you know, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess as an artist, you get to this. Yeah. Started thinking about the stars. You like, studied the classics. You studied the classics. You do what you gotta do, and then like, what the hell am I doing <laughs> this for? Comes about. Yeah, and I, you know what, now that actually makes me, you know, think about my relationship to my grandmother, and I, yeah. I lived with her for five years in the Bronx. I know. Well, you lived with your grandmother, um, who you called an amateur hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know what? We're going to talk about grandma. I want to quickly ask you about this because, you know, there are artists, you know, I I enjoy the art and, and I don't like to pretend like I know either. I'm just like, oh, what's this? Let me see what I can get out of it. I love when it stirs some kind of emotion. But a lot of times it's just like, oh, here's a painting. What's next? <laughs> here's a sculpture. For me, for me, it's like churches. For me, it's like I love the beautiful effort and love somebody put into it to the creation of this and i might not always get the message if there is one but i can really appreciate it and i love that and i love you know and and you know and and just having that share with others and potentially inspire what that could inspire in others but now there are artists out there you know who repurpose materials you know i've seen cute things done with hula hoops gum wrappers <laughs> What sets mm -hmm. your work apart from others who source salvaged materials? Well, I, I guess we're all in, in conversation with, e with each other. And I, I think the way that I think about it is a kind of uh, hidden and, and also encapsulating archive, right? Like an alternative history that yeah. is uh, an alternative history display, right? So if... Like the, the installation that you saw at the ICA in Los Angeles, yes, right? Like which, I was in LA for yeah, a month, yeah. Oh, yeah. collected a whole bunch of materials, and then tried to make something that I thought that was responsive to that the institution's particular yeah. proximity to... The area, right? It was close to Skid yeah, Row. Yeah, to Skid Row, yeah, to Skid Row, to the Greyhound bus station, um, the kind the kinds of development and gentrification that's happening all over yeah. Los Angeles, right? And then thinking about the four corners of that room encapsulating the kinds of development or history that's happening and thinking about displacement, but then at, then these actual items serving as you know, like as a reminder and a witness and evidence of that kind of displacement.
Yeah. So I, I think I think that all the materials is kind of you know silent witnesses, and that they're speaking to that particular history and that place and time. So it's like it's also like another kind of way of of making a, a snapshot or a picture of something that it it only exists within that particular moment, and then it'll never be seen again. Yeah, it, it was so. First of all, I was obsessed. I loved all you know the the random Brandy Norwood hair tracks, hair pieces. <laughs> I, <laughs> I loved all the dolls without the clothing, you know, the the plastic dolls. I had the plastic head and arms and legs, but but the body was like pillow <laughs> and just filled with and, and those suitcases, those heavy suitcases that, well, grandma would call them maletas, you know, the little maleta. It was just and then, of course, you know, you also had like your own. The piece also had... I, it was no space, right? No space hidden child. It had, um, I want to say, you know, what, like the Jesus native scene. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Except with a grown-up Jesus. In my, well, look, listen, as, as an art person, I can interpret it for myself. Don't you tell me I'm wrong. I'm not telling you wrong. I'm telling, I'm telling, tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, I don't remember that. Well, I just remembered, it, it reminded, you know, Jesus behind, for me, it, it it was kind of native scene, but in like a zoo formation. It's like, oh, Jesus behind bars. It's, it's just, there was a lot of imagery going on, okay? I, I, I had my pen and pencil that day, but you know, you were skipping out of town. So I don't have my notes from that day anymore. <laughs> but now... Let's talk about you know you know collecting these things to tell a story about the time and place of where the this exhibit was to reside and where it did, as as all of yours do. Again, going back just a little bit back, you you live with your grandmother. She passed away. Yeah, she passed away in twenty eleven. Hey, grandma, I, I'm I'm trying. Uh, no, mine's passed away in twenty fifteen. So you you called her an amateur hoarder, an affectionist archivist. Another word you mm-hmm. you used. Um, who accepted neighbors' unwanted furniture and belongings? Mm-hmm. I like how you refer to things as possession, the you know, things and possessions as silent witnesses. So, what about how did your grandmother influence this idea in you? Because obviously, she was like, "Yes, just bring it in, set it right down." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people would offer it to her, and then that was it. That's all she wrote. Be in the house. I mean, the house was intense at times. Did it um, have to be rearranged, or she just said wherever it fit? It was my wife. Did you laugh at her? Did you tell her like, "What the hell do you need this for?" No, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't judge. I didn't prod her too much. Yeah, I tried to clean up where I could. But I, I think you know, like her, her democratic approach to all the material that was being offered to her is what. I think really instilled the, the way that I approach material. Right, because you because you you're able to find the beauty in it if someone else couldn't. Right, and and then she was you know like yeah she was the the amateur historian <laughs> of her building right like mm. that all these stories were contained within the objects right family stories from the people that had given it to her and people who had moved away or people who had passed away you know and and here she was like a little time capsule of of the stories of of these people, her neighbors that she had relationships with. So yeah. I think I, I thought it was beautiful. I love that. So, so now in your opinion, it's always in your opinion, right? 
Yeah, I hope so. Give me someone else's opinion. Why are people Why are people so fascinated or obsessed with collecting things, do you think? Stuff. Stuff. I don't know. I think it, it's it, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we're we're told from like Saturday morning cartoons in the '80s. You remember that, right? Like uh, yeah. getting all all hot under the collar to look at the toy commercials in between the Saturday right. morning cartoons. And I and I remember specifically like sitting there with a piece of paper and a pencil, trying to write down the toys that I wanted. Right? For Christmas, like, the commercials were telling me what I wanted. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So I think we're we're shaped pretty early, right, to to be programmed as to what we want or or what we should desire, the kinds of things that we should want to, you know. Yeah, especially in America, things make you more valuable. Even though we're yeah. the ones placing the value on these things, and it's it's subjective, <laughs> right? Yeah, the things ain't got nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, generally, you know, what can we tell about a person by their possessions? I, I know because your grandmother knew these people, you knew the story behind them, but what, without knowing people, what can their possessions or their discarded junk tell about them? Well, like, just, just like a strand of hair, right? Like, <laughs> it, right? I hope you wore your like, gloves. Right, exactly. Like the strand of hair has your DNA. You know, they can, you know, extrapolate and see sure. what your diet is, right? Maybe what your socioeconomic level was, right? But like thinking about, yeah, just like the human residue of like hair or dust or kind of tissue like left on a particular object. Yeah. But I think it also means, you know, what you, you know, economically like social standing and, and class as to what you were able to have access to purchase for yourself, what you were, how, how the person even viewed themselves. Like if someone was able to get, uh, you know, take a, a panoramic view real quick of somebody's bedroom, right? Like that's a tell all right. It's, it's a little museum, <laughs> right? I love thinking of people's yeah. space as a little museum. <laughs> Yeah, tell all the business. My <laughs> husband is always telling me when we go to somebody's house, don't touch anything. But I'm like, I want to observe. I want to see. I want to touch. I want to smell. I love this knickknack. How can we use it? <laughs> What's printed right. on the bottom? You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I just love it. And I always do it without permission. But everybody's usually pretty fine with it. But my husband's like, don't embarrass me. <laughs> 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 especially now uh, <laughs> especially uh, right <laughs> right exactly don't touch anything without a glove so now in relation to the things we accumulate because obviously not all things are left behind accidentally right they can be passed on to the next generation which i feel is very presumptuous that any of our loved ones <laughs> wants any of our stupid <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, but then that's where, I, like, access to wealth comes in, right? Because what? Right. If, if it was, like, a grandfather clock that was worth, like, 10 Gs or something, yes. taking this antique road show, right? Like, yeah, you want it because you want to unload it or something, you know? Yeah, Versus right. If, 
grandma wants to give you some. I love. By the way, I love the antiques roadshow, but I'm always like, did you just nick that on the way there? Now you just ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) You should have just kept it at home. Did you see the one where the guy had bought a Rolex in like the seventies? <laughs> no. <laughs> what that happened? Clip, you gotta look up that clip because he he almost passes out when they tell him how much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's all produced, right? Okay, we're gonna do that again. We're gonna take it again from the top. <laughs> this time, go bigger. <laughs> Roll your eyes behind your head. <laughs> But don't touch the watch ever again. It's ours. So, but now, whether it's pictures, jewelry, or clothing, right? Why? I guess this is sort of similar, but why do we have a need to be remembered or, you know, through our belongings? I mean, or is it just because we just think there's value to it and we want to just maybe pass something along? We don't want to think, we don't want our loved ones when we're gone to think we were just broke pieces of. Is that what it is? <laughs> Here's something that might be a value someday, maybe. There might be something that might be a value, but then, yeah, it's like <clears throat> thinking about, yeah, maybe the more that you can consume or the more that, that you can collect, yeah. somehow that, in a way, is is a kind of, it's a portrait of yourself that you're leaving behind. So yeah. now, at least, you know, at the very least, people got to go through your stuff and throw whatever <laughs> out right through. For me, it's everything. Mom, if you're listening, it's going to be everything. (laughs) 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 But I will, you know, whoever wants, maybe they can have some stuff, but it's just stuff. So, but now, (laughs) in the super, let's let's talk about art, right? Fine. Fine art. (laughs) Hello, this is fine art. Welcome to our fine art exhibit. Yeah. Now, in the world of fine art, which can be honestly superficial, right? Where does your art fit into that? I, I look at your art as as high art. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what she said. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't know. Maybe the venue determines that. Oh, right, right. I no, Okay, let's talk about that, right? Because there's gallerists, dealers. For the type of work that you construct, And do you work with dealers or you just work with gallerists? I, well, I, I have a gallery, yeah. And uh, I work with them sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but most of the time, yeah. I just tell them to mind their business and let me get to work. <laughs> but yeah, but most, most of the time, uh, the work that I make is, it's is not being commissioned by not-for-profit institutes, right? Or, or I love that. So, like museum venues, so they have all the infrastructure in place to support the pro- kinds of projects that I want to do, and so then that's kind of what determines the whatever I guess, like the social status around the particular kind of intervention is the mechanisms yeah. that make the whole thing go, and then you know institutions have educational components right so there's lots of different people that hopefully are coming into the institutional space and engaging with it and different kinds of conversations are being had about particular things within a gallery or like a commercial gallery setting it's different it's more about uh you know selling selling work for right it has to be appraised and then well yeah it's, it's like you know building a market for for a work and for an artist and and that's you know how most people so is there is there a demand for the type of work you do 
<laughs> I mean, because honestly, <laughs> honestly, you know, how much space would I need in my Nisha flat to fit a DeVille original? I mean, <laughs> come in. Don't touch the art. Don't touch the art. Walk around it. <laughs> we can do a special commission. <laughs> you- I come over. Leave me a little corner in your apartment. I, I love that. I love that. She's, she's, she, oh, is that Abigail? Yes, but she's, she's actually the art for, at the moment. So don't touch her. <laughs> Leave her be. She's taking a nap. She's saying mm-hmm. something. Do you have any advice to young or older up and coming artists who might be thinking of going into the business, even in this time with dealers or galleries? Because, you know, a lot of small galleries were already shuttering, I feel like, before any of this, right? right? For emerging artists. Does anyone ever ask you, like, do you have any? I mean, I know that's so general. But for, well, I mean, but, but for most artists, they look at it, oh, they can probably make a living, even if it's a small living. Yeah, I, I would think, or, or my advice always is to never stop making yeah. whatever it is that you're doing, just to continue doing it to the best of your ability. And I, I feel like the more that it's actually coming from uh, your heart and the that. more that you invest in, in it it eventually will yield return yes yes that's what I that's what I at least keep telling myself like one day <laughs> an audience will find you and you won't be doing this for nothing <laughs> are you like that I love that <laughs> <laughs> real quickly I'm gonna get real Let's let's just get real trivial with you here. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> In terms of art, you yourself, I feel like, are a walking piece of it at times. You're fashionable, mm-hmm. you know, which is an understatement, I think, for you. What would you describe your sense of style as it correlates maybe to your image as an artist? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. <laughs> mm. I mean, mm. there's lots of yeah. lace, leathers, patents, and and flowers and colors lots and layers, purples, colors, right? Layer, yeah. Textiles, yeah. shapes, and 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 <laughs> <laughs> textures, and, yeah. and prints, and and linens, and and exactly. It's like making a collage, but on your body. <laughs> okay, so you are just walking collage. Mm-hmm, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. I love that. Be, what I love, but it is, and and this is the thing when we find ourselves and even in our art and what we create and we spend a lot of time doing it, and whether it's on our body or or just, you know, manifested into a piece of work, it's only because we've worked on it for so long and we know ourselves so well. It is our job to make it look so easy. And obviously, I feel like people look at you and like, I'm going to try to do what she does. And who knows what the hell they walk out the house looking like. (laughs) I don't know if a lot of people are looking at me and (laughs) saying, No, just me? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know what? Things that look insane on a hanger usually look good on me. Like, just by... But that's the thing. But like I'm, uh. it's it's the same thing. It's like even with music, I'm like, oh, I know I can hear myself. I can do that with my voice, or I can do that with this, or I can do. It's with anything, right? I can, as long as you can see it, it's a natural occurrence. It's nothing you have to force. 
No. Obviously, no. unless you have to force your leg into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless you need help pouring yourself into it. Yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> By the way, one of my favorite shows, and 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 it, it's so me, is absolutely fabulous, and um, oh, yeah. just so my world, comedically, and just the things that Jennifer Saunders as a writer has to say about the world. I love it. Anyway, off topic. <laughs> let's talk about some of your. <laughs> let's talk about some of your your past work. Yeah. My book. what what work are you talking about which one in particular well i want to let's start with you did a series harlem stories the harlem river blues Uh uh-huh um you were reading about a story that or or at least you found you know a particular story that had to do with an mta bus depot in harlem which once served as a burial ground for past church parishioners and i don't i i'm Correct me if I'm wrong. Did they also have white parishioners, or just white people buried there at the same time? I, that that particular site actually, um, I think is is under development right now. Still, but um, yeah, but but in the, I might be wrong about the dates. I'm like being fuzzy right now, and a, a friend of mine uh, just sent me a paper that he wrote in depth about that particular site. But so I don't know if the, the site originates from maybe like the 17th century and <laughs> there were cemeteries all in that, that area there. Cause that's where the original, I think shoreline was. Where so the all, all sorts of people were buried there. So all kinds of people were buried there. And it's, I think it was probably segregated. The black portion right. was segregated so that there was, a, there was just a specific African burial spot. Right. Except then, the white bodies were exhumed and reburied elsewhere, right. and the black bodies right. were left to be buried under construction. Right. right. From from various kinds of construction, I think maybe the site had, had been developed or redeveloped maybe about four or five times. With the last time being the bus depot that I think was constructed on the site maybe in the 1940s, um, but now the bus depot is no is no more, and I think the area is being uh, developed. I don't remember what the current status is of, of yeah. those things. But but so, yeah. nevertheless, your work there and your piece and and and, and, and just you of trying to recapture that story at, at the Harlem River, um, even though it wasn't necessarily the site. It caught a lot of attention, and um, y- you know, and it's obviously just this bigger open up this bigger conversations. It's it's not only do Black lives not always matter, but the Black lost lives don't. Right now, and speaking of discarded remains, how did we get to this place where people are more disposable than their belongings? <laughs> Well, I know I it's guess, such a big. Thing. <laughs> no, but I, I feel like the United States was founded on that. Yeah, right? that they hunted animals out of extinction for pelts, right? Like that was the the original first kind of like hooves, horns, thing, right? Was, uh, oh, yeah, just just wear fur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fur to export back to Europe, right? So then, if it was founded with that kind of product over everything, over you know, human life over native life over, you know, subjugating Africans to this uh, horrible experience of hundreds of years of oppression, then, you know, yeah, I mean, 
this nation was founded for <laughs> for free free business, right? Like not necessarily for freedom of religion no. or whatever democracy is, or you, you know what I mean. And, like, and one of the earlier enterprises were the selling of people. <laughs> exactly. But I, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So I think that there's things S- have buying over, and selling know, of land that's not ours yet. Yeah, I think I think that's always been clear. Yeah. <laughs> well, you say <laughs> I, that. Yeah. But, you know, it's, believe it or not, people are oblivious still <laughs> to that. Yeah. I love how it's your work, I want to say grand installations, can transport people to a certain place in time, depict a particular story, because obviously that's what you do. That's what you take a space for, right? Yeah. You're not limited yeah, by just a canvas. You, you, let's just tell a whole story. I want to go back to that day where, you know, the Institute of Contemporary Art, mm-hmm. no shelter, no space hidden shelter. Right, Los Angeles. I Los think, Angeles. Yeah. Now, it right off of Skid Row, you know, and I'm still a struggling artist, by the way. And trust me, my parents, they're still not so very proud of me. But I came from a place <laughs> where, what are you doing with your life? Now, I came from a place where, you know, even though I don't have much, if I have it, anything, I'm giving it to you. Whether it's a sandwich, a water bottle. I mean, me and my husband were like, let's just buy something extra just in case because someone is always going to need food. Mm-hmm. But now the juxtaposition of entering that gallery space, you know, you come from outside, you go as, as soon as you walk in, there's DJs and cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. And, and while the very people... You know, out, just outside of this vent, it's their stories that are at least being highlighted by your exhibition, maybe not the other exhibitions. Does anyone ever get this irony? Does anyone ever get it? I mean, I, I felt so I, guilty. I, I'm like, are we also serving this champagne to the people outside? <laughs> Can we just let them in? I think that's, that's partially my point. Yeah. It's inserting outside of reality realities into the sanitized uh institutional spaces sanitized and, I think, and people know that and and that's why they invite me to do the kinds of things that i do but yeah yeah the, it's do you it's not do, so much mm-hmm. no go ahead i'm sorry no it's it's not so much of hmm. <laughs> no nah, nah. Okay, well then, let me help you. Do you ever expect your, do you ever expect your audience, or even demand that they not just get it, but maybe after this, talk about it or do something about it, or is that too much to ask of people? Like, how do you inspire or encourage others to be active participants in your work? You can't, right? Is that you're not like a preacher or anything? No, but I, I I hope that sometimes that I can make something that would be enough to maybe jolt someone out of their their every yeah. everydayness, right? And then then maybe that's planting a seed for different kinds of thoughts, right? Like 
like preparing them to think about something or seeing something in a new way. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably the most that you could actually do in yeah. terms of trying to work to change people's minds about something or their perceptions about something. Yeah. But I mean, but any I little also, thing, I mean, just to be a, pur- pur- a purposeful neighbor, you, you, you can be an activist in some sort of form. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, stock of the world around you and the yeah. people around you. Well, I mean, you said in one of the the interviews that I that I just watched yesterday, you know that and and oh and whether it's LA or anywhere else, you've been in places where yes, you have somebody with a suitcase just walking over someone. Yeah, that was very That's, specific. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> she's like, oh no, that was Jimmy. He was walking over Jimmy. <laughs> No, that was in Vancouver in Gastown. Yeah. And it was in 2013, and, and the whole neighborhood had been started, like... Gentrified. Gentrified because of the, the 2010 uh, Winter Olympics. Yeah. But there was a, a not-for-profit space there where I was doing an exhibition, and that neighborhood is not unlike Skid Row in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so it was, like, the first but what, time that I saw... But when you think about, you know, proposition, you know... um you know, having an event like that, right? The Olympics, the area, the mayor, they, they don't even have time to insert, you know, programs to replace all these, you know, or, or to accommodate all these displaced people. They won't even have enough time because they're spending so much money and all their resources into building something for people who could afford to go to these events. That's true, but and uh, what was really, what's really interesting about Gastown in particular is that they've had a long, a long-standing like clean needle exchange programs yeah. and all, all of these different social programs for the community that lives there. And so, I mean, the last time I was there was in 2013. I'm sure it's really different now, but it was that like you know going to work at the gallery at like seven o'clock in the morning and thinking about the art that you're making about the history of this place and then seeing somebody just you know in pain like laying in a gutter and some young professional almost stepping over them you know on their way to work and then thinking about how you're you're the kind of witness caught in between these two realities right where you're also at a privileged distance right where you're trying to make an artwork about all of these things that are unfolding simultaneously but then you're kind of like caught in the middle so and it also puts put something on you it's just so what are you doing you know what are you what doing are you, are you i know uh, yeah what so i mean yeah. that was that was a, a moment of almost existential crisis <laughs> <laughs> just pulling out your hair i feel yeah. like i feel like it's from a wayne's movie i can't remember i feel like you know a sandwich is given to a homeless person and then as they walk away the sandwich hits them in the head i don't want that um <laughs> But I feel like it could be the opposite as someone, you know, you, you see somebody walking past someone, you hit them with the sandwich, like, give that to them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now, you know, you work mm-hmm. as, as, as much time and thought you put into it in, in the hopes that someone can gain something from it or not, right? I mean, sometimes you can't help that. You're just making art for yourself. This is the story I want to tell, you know, f- it. I don't care who, you know, this is, if you need to hear, well, we all need to hear it, but if you're not receptive of, of it, then I can't control that. But this is the story I'm going to tell regardless. 
Well, I think that's why I try to make as many entry points as possible for different folks yes. to, to be able but, to enter into the work. But now your exhibitions aren't always welcomed, Abigail. <laughs> now, new migration. <laughs> oh, damn. Yay! In, <laughs> an installation, I mean, let's talk deep. An installation that was to evoke the great migration of African-Americans who fled north during the Jim Crow era, you now as part of the Five by Five Festival, a statewide, a citywide <laughs> festival, you had a storefront art installation in Anacostia, Anacostia, Washington yeah, DC. I don't know <laughs> who's that. I never dated her. Now, <laughs> because of complaints, your storefront installation was removed after community members complained that it looked like junk. <laughs> <laughs> People called it an eyesore and offensive. <laughs> yeah. That, that was that was definitely a great learning opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so funny? When I went to the LA, because my husband knows my humor, and we go into but I'm making in front of everyone else. I'm looking at other people like, what are they thinking? I'm like, they must be thinking like, what's this garbage? But <laughs> <laughs> Does that hurt your feelings that, 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 or, or what does it make you feel? Um, and that, that moment, I don't really remember anymore how I felt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you people don't I get it. I, I was angry more at, um, the people that I, that facilitated that. Who backed uh, down. No, no, no. Well, they, yeah. There to was, the pressure. There was a thing that that was being kind of cultivated with specifically having a, a, like a distance or, you know, not really involving the community in what was happening. It was just, you know, the city was a backdrop. They invited artists from outside of the city to come and make things wherever they felt like it. And so the, but they did, they obviously didn't fully vet you. <laughs> No, well, but there were lots of conversations about what is actually the role of the public in public art. Like, should they be able to weigh in? And, and um, the organization that, that facilitated that whole thing didn't really care about any of that. And, and okay. um, so that's, that's really... And there was also this kind of, you know, the politics of fight. So that's what really was just a kind of um, a real learning curve moment for yeah. me because all of the sites where I did these installations and these vacant storefronts, I didn't know uh, prior to me going there and deciding that I wanted to do this in this particular place that these sites were being kept purposely empty for at least a decade by the government and that the neighborhood and where the Forget sites about affordable there, housing. Yeah, the, that area, that whole area was built in, I think, in the 1860s. It was originally called Uniontown, and the developer that built it, he went bust. And uh, originally, there were no Irish, no black people who were allowed to live in the town, which now is a, since I think the 50s, is a pro predominantly African-American neighborhood. But the houses have a historic preservation status, so they can't be knocked down. So the, the government is waiting for these houses, keeps buy, quietly buying up properties and waiting for these places just to completely collapse. Yeah. In order for them to be able to, you know, knock them down and do whatever they want in terms of development for for that particular area, and so the the actual people, the citizens, the taxpayers of that neighborhood, were had zero access to those spaces, and they had been trying for years. 
So they wanted to know why was I, as an outsider, given permission to have access to these spaces. So it was a real, it was a real contentious thing that went on and on and on. um, And this is something you agree with. You're like, you're right. Yeah. Exactly. Why should I have the I mean, access to this? <laughs> yeah, it was it was a very painful process because you know it, it's very easy sometimes for artists to find themselves in these uh, sticky situations because people are always trying to you know um, use people you know use people to change the idea of a space or a place right like renaming of a neighborhood is the first kind of pass of you know, gentrification or development, right? Like, we're just going to rename this whole thing. Yeah. And front, like, we don't know that all of these people have been living here for decades and struggling. Yeah. Um, well, and, and and those are things you can't control. You don't know until you get there. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't do enough uh, homework. And every time I kept asking people, you know, because I kept trying to make contact with uh, different community members. Like, I was, I was so desperate. I was just, like, talking to old men in the street. I was like, take me to church. <laughs> yeah. I, I gave my man, I gave my number to this man who kept calling me. To, really hey, to ba- me to hey baby, you want to go out to IHOPs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was stressful. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Who's this new whore in town? <laughs> so, but now you've, You've done installations and processionals in the U.S. and Europe. Any plans to showcase your work in the motherland? I know Cape Town and Dakar are big places for art. I mean, obviously, when we can travel. Um, no, I don't have any plans for that, okay. but I would love to do that. Right. Well, get on it, sister. <laughs> <laughs> I did do a procession with uh, director Charlotte Brathwaite and. 2018 in Accra for the Chale Wote Festival there. And that was amazing. And I I was able to make an installation in a former slave fort there too in Jamestown. Well, well, speaking of, because you know, Mm -hmm. you're an art connoisseur, we visit other exhibits. You once visited a Confederate museum. Yeah, and I'm paraphrasing, but but without the subject matter, you f- you discovered a sense that people you people are able to convey love through the creation of something, anything, for someone they love. Well, the, man, and maybe that's the thing. Going back to the objects, the question you had brought up earlier about uh, the objects that people leave behind for family members, yeah. right? Like maybe they take care of it. That, that that sweater for that loved one. Yeah, there was love. And that, you know, was translated from their fingertips into the material that they were manipulating. And hopefully, you know, they're thinking that that material might create warmth or care and love for a, a future family member yeah. uh, that, that could talk over space and time that they're not going to be present for. But, yeah, there was yeah. There, there was a Confederacy Museum in Richmond, uh, Virginia, which is now some... Uh, it's moved from the location that I originally went to, but there was an oddities exhibition in the basement there, which was really interesting because it had all of these handmade items that people made for lovers, brothers, you know, friends who were fighting for the Confederacy and some things were made by slaves. And so then that was in the moment that I kind of rattled me, you know, to the core a little bit thinking about how that all of this, this, this 
history doesn't belong to a particular group, you know, like the Daughters of the Confederacy or something, that this is actual American history that belongs to all of us. Right. I love, I love that. Now, we don't have much time, but <laughs> I, I just want to get your opinion real quick uh, in this topic, speaking of repatriation. And, and for my listeners, I had to look it up, so calm down, guys. I'll explain <laughs> it to you. Repatriation is the return of art or cultural heritage, ancient, this is from Wikipedia, ancient eluded art to their rightful country of origin or former owners or their heirs. Oftentimes, these property and these items and physical artifacts belong to a group or society, and they were taken from another group in an act of looting, whether through imperialism, colonialism, war. They can include sculptures, painting, monuments, objects, tools, weapons, um, but they're kept as anthropological studies. Um, and they also sometimes keep human remains, right? What is your take on that? I mean, I feel like because of quarantine, it's proven that we can just see this shit online. Just returned it. <laughs> just give it back. Give it back. We'll see it online. Give us a tour online. There's a really good documentary that the BBC produced. Uh, I think it's called The History of Color in Three. Mm-hmm. And there's one on, on the color of white and it's kind of dubious uh, history. Mm-hmm. But in it, it talks about the <laughs> whitening of, right, <laughs> white of uh, these Greek, these sculptures are an, architect- an architectural element that was on, I don't remember the building now, in 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 Greece, and it was taken by the British, and it's been in their you know, holdings and museum this whole time. And then at some point in the 20th century, uh, some some donor person insisted that the sculptures be whitened so that they were stripped of the original color, the layers of color they, they had on them, and yeah. it was actually whitened, which all just fuels this kind of... Uh, like, literally. Project, the project of white supremacy, right? But anyway but i think yeah i think the whole idea that people can't take care of the objects that their culture and that their ancestors produces is just lunacy yeah right yeah well well this hour goes by so fast we never have time i know you are um have some works that have been put on hold i know you're working on something entitled no space hidden under heaven Yes. And something having to do with a labyrinth and wind chimes and junk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mean to just... <laughs> <laughs> any, any particular themes you're working on with those? Uh, with, with that piece in particular, I was going to use the liter- literal holdings or um, material history that is in the libraries and collections at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. It was an exhibition that was slated to open on April 1st at the Institute for the Humanities. Yeah. Um, but that's that's not that's not happening right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. hopefully in the future, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. well, that's, that's, that's okay. I mean, I mean, <laughs> what, what do you do then to... Do you have to do anything specifically to ensure that you're keeping the project move forward to some capacity? Well, yeah, I'm working on the plans for it now. I'm being uh, optimistic that it'll 
it'll find a place and, and be able to happen sometime in the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so very much for, for joining me, Miss Abigail. I, I didn't even know you had it. I'm like, oh, I know her middle name now. Holla. You, you, I thought you knew her middle name. This was like, oh, wow. You're blowing up the full government today. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you, I feel like you had a project with the word Dawn in it. Oh, yeah. New York. Yeah. Was that yeah, yeah, was that yeah. purposeful or that just just happened? That was purposeful, but yeah. it was taken from a Garcia Lorca poem. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. For, for, I, I, real quickly, what do you want people to get at the end of the day from your work? I, I know it's our history; we're all interconnected. You know, you're a believer that five percent, you know, of you know of all of us are made up of stardust and all that jazz. What <laughs> is it? ultimate the ultimate takeaway from your work that you want people to get um actually the the largeness of us right like there are capacity for greatness right if we actually come together and sometimes you know a lot a lot of times depending on where you start out in life uh how you see yourself is inaccurate right and then how we're actually a part of a whole kind of solar system that's happening here and not just like whatever uh it's not just about us we're so small in the in the universe but we're also a part of the universe yeah yeah all a part of each other and just thinking about what that means and how we could be mindful of that from day to day and how that could govern our actions i love that and 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 speaking of Mm -hmm. you know how we're all interconnected what happens to the stuff we know what when it when you get it and you repurpose it, what happens to that stuff after you use it? Most of the time it goes back to wherever I, I, I found it or the garbage. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so much for repurposing <laughs> forever. Uh-huh. But now some of, your works, but some of your work stays commissioned, right? Where can we see some of your work? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> I feel like I should have um, had this written down somewhere where we can find some of your work. In the meantime, I know where people can find out more information about that, by the way. So let's share that for more information about Abigail and everything she does. She has uh, a bio and about her on art21.org. You have an extensive portfolio of work on michaelrain.com or Michelle Mitchell Rain. I guess it's French. <laughs> Michelle so Rain. Yeah, Michelle, Michelle Rain. <laughs> M I C H E L R E I N dot com. You could see Abigail's full portfolio. You can find her on Instagram at Victorious Purple, uh, Facebook at Abigail dot Deville. Just Google her, Abigail Deville, for everything we do here, Radio Free Brooklyn dot com, and for everything I do, Junkinjam dot com. Thank you, Abigail. This episode and all episodes of the Junk and Jam Hour can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts. Google Play Music and simply tell Alexa, play the Junk and Jam Hour. Thank you.